Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. This is an RNZ podcast. Kia ora, call William Ray Aho. Welcome to Black Sheep. Early September 1944. German troops are retreating from the city of Brussels in Belgium. It's the end of four years of occupation by Nazi Germany as the Allies push out from their landing zone in Normandy towards the German heartland. A group of Waffen-SS, including an officer and a sergeant, are arguing over what to do with a store of ammunition. The officer wants to detonate the ammo inside the house where it's being kept so it doesn't fall into the hands of the Belgian resistance. The sergeant argues that the neighbouring homes are German property and would probably be destroyed in the process. He says they should round up some civilians, get them to move the ammo to a nearby park and blow it up there. The officer agrees and the sergeant gets a group of Belgians together. They begin carrying the rockets and shells out of the building. While this is happening, the SS sergeant takes one of the workers aside and whispers to him. I'm a British prisoner of war. Help me. In all honesty, we don't actually know those are the exact words used, but what we do know for sure, and what probably shocked the Belgian man he was whispering to, is that that man in the SS sergeant's uniform was a New Zealand soldier. His name was Roy Corlander, a private in the Second New Zealand Expeditionary Force, captured by the German army three years earlier in Greece. But between the moment when he was captured and the moment where he whispered in that Belgian's ear, he did something most of his fellow soldiers considered unforgivable. He turned traitor. Throughout his life, he seems to be a bit of an opportunist. Always had an eye for the main chance and looking after the interests of Roy Corlander. This is New Zealand Defence Force historian John Crawford. He wrote about Roy Corlander for the Dictionary of New Zealand Biography. John also helped me access the Defence Force's sealed file on Corlander's court-martial. I wasn't allowed to make any copies of it or even take photos, so anytime you hear a quote from Corlander from now on, you're relying on my possibly slightly dodgy handwritten notes. Anyway, I asked John about Corlander's early life. He was born in London in 1914. He was illegitimate. His mother married uh, Leonard Corlander in 1920. And then all we really know is that he came out 
to work on his father's uh, plantation in the New Hebrides, um, now Vanuatu, of course, in the late 30s. And then he turns up in New Zealand in November 1938. So he only would have been in New Zealand very briefly before the outbreak of the Second World War. Yes, although, you know, there were a couple of interesting things happened before him <laughs> during that period. Um, he got a job as a clerk at the Indian Revenue Department, which tends to suggest he's a reasonably intelligent and well-educated person because to get a clerk's job in a government department in 1939 or late 38 is pretty good going. But then in mid-1939, he's in trouble because... Uh, in Napier, he's arrested after a burglary. Um, what happened was that the uh, young woman who was the secretary of the Gaieties Theatre in Napier came home, went into her house and was assaulted by men that had broken into the house. Now, she had the safe keys for the theatre, so one presumes that the objective was to get the keys and then go and steal the money out of the safe. Well, she screamed a lot and um, the whole thing fell apart and Corland and uh, two other men were eventually convicted for their parts in this crime. The 19-year-old got off pretty lightly for his involvement in this robbery. He ended up with just 18 months probation. His evidence is very calculated, if you ask me. It's designed to diminish his uh, involvement in the plot, and it really reminds me of what comes later uh, during, during and after World War II. I mean, it's sort of a weird mix because he gets this job in the bureaucracy. Like, he seems like a pretty, you know, it doesn't doesn't seem like a particularly interesting kind of job. And then he's also involved in a violent robbery. It's sort of a, a weird mix of things to happen. It is. And you never know where you are, Roy Corlander. Corlander was still on probation when Britain, and by extension New Zealand, declared war on Germany. We arrange ourselves without fear beside Britain. Where she goes, we go. Where she stands, we stand. Within days of that broadcast by Prime Minister Michael Joseph Savage, the government set a target of 6,600 volunteers for the army. A week later, nearly double that number had signed up. One of the volunteers was Roy Corlander. He got married three days before he enlisted. Um, and his uh, long-suffering wife stood by him through all his troubles and used to get, until she died. Um, maybe he wanted to make a fresh start. Uh, you get the impression that he was a bit of an adventurer. So perhaps, you know, signing up to join the Twin ZDF was his chance to have a clean break from the trouble he'd had in New Zealand and make a new start for himself. What's his experience of the war like early on? Well, he joins 18 Infantry Battalion... And he goes with that battalion to Egypt in 1940. Now, apparently, from his military record, he's quite a keen soldier. And he gets posted to the battalion intelligence section, which again suggests he's a reasonably intelligent, educated person, and starts to teach himself German. So he's with the battalion and then goes in 1941 to Greece, the disastrous Greece, Greek campaign. And then in April 1941, of course, the New Zealand Division and the rest of the Allied forces are pushed rapidly down from the north of Greece, uh, right down past Athens. Corlander is separated from the main body of the battalion. Quite a few small groups got separated like this. And he and another man from the intelligence section joined up with a company of stra stragglers, they were called, and they got as far south as Kalamata, which is on the south coast of the Peloponnese. And there they, they were captured on the 29 April 1941. 
Courlander began the long journey to a German prisoner of war camp in Yugoslavia. He was loaded onto a cattle train which had been repurposed to transport prisoners. While that train was on the move, Courlander and one of his fellow soldiers, Private Kedsel, saw a chance to make a run for it. Years later, at his court-martial, Courlander described what happened. From the moment I was captured, I immediately began plans to escape. On the night of June 1941, I and Private Kedsel succeeded in escaping through the window of the cattle truck that was taking us to Germany. The train stopped and the Germans started firing at us as we ran amongst the bushes along the railway track. Private Kedsel was hit and I was recaptured early the next morning. I received a beating up, was trussed up with barbed wire and taken to Germany. This is one of the few parts of Corlander's testimony which is actually backed up by multiple sources, so we can be pretty sure it's accurate. Although John Crawford has his doubts about some aspects. Corlander always comes across to me as a bit of a Walter Mitty character. He, he fantasises, he embellishes, he makes up stories. Um, so I can quite believe he was beaten up, I can quite believe he was tied up, but with barbed wire, who knows? Corlander eventually reached the German prison camp, Stalag 18D, right near the border with Austria. Yes, and he actually starts acting as the interpreter for the prisoners there and is also their sort of trusted spokesperson. He's elected to that position. So obviously he was quite well liked at the time and his knowledge of German is an interesting question. He claimed he started to teach himself German when he was in the army. Certainly by this time... 1942, his command of the language must have been pretty reasonable. And uh, so about this time, he he goes with a party of other prisoners to work on a farm or various farms in Austria. And that's quite standard sort of stuff. And in fact, uh, depending on the temperament of the farmer, uh, things could be fairly rough or they could be quite comfortable compared, compared with what it was like at the camp. And he claims that this farmer actually tried to conspire to help him and some fellow prisoners escape. Yes, that's a really interesting story. I'd love to know more about what went on when Corlander was on that farm because there is some evidence uh, and correspondence he received while he was in prison after the war that he had a relationship with a young Austrian woman. Now, that's interesting. If that's the case, it would leave him open to blackmail, basically, because if the German authorities found out that he's having a relationship with a local woman, she'd be in terrible trouble, he'd be in trouble, and it was used to put pressure on people when this sort of situation came to light. Corlander said he had to abandon this plan to escape from an Austrian farm after the Germans got suspicious. If they did blackmail him over a relationship with a local woman, he never mentioned it at his trial. Corlander was sent back to the POW camp where, he says, he came up with a different plan of escape. He told his court-martial that... I propagated the impression that I was a white Russian and favourably disposed to the Germans. In case you're wondering, no, Corlander was not referring to a vodka-based cocktail. White Russians, also known as the White Guard or the White Movement, were anti-communist Russian citizens who fought against the Russian Revolution. Lots of white Russians actually did end up fighting on the German side of the war. He says he's, um, he starts to sort of look as though he's got pro-German views. He tells people that he's born in Riga um, and that he would be quite keen to join the German army. He would claim that this was all part of his big plot to get a bit more freedom so he could then escape. Um, I don't really buy it. 
Whatever his motive, Corlander's plan worked. The Germans sent him from Stalag 18D to a special prison camp, a place called Ginchagen, right on the outskirts of Berlin. In 1943, he turns up at this holiday camp, the Ginchagen prisoner war camp, which was basically, uh, there were two camps, one for other ranks and one for officers. And at these camps, food was better, conditions were much better than your standard prisoner war camp. And they were really propaganda uh, instruments by the Germans to show, oh, look how well we're looking after the prisoners. But not all of the prisoners at Genshagen were what they seemed. Some, like Corlander, were people identified as being likely to collaborate with the Germans. Others were just normal POWs. But a handful were actually undercover agents trying to recruit volunteers for the Waffen-SS. Yeah, that Waffen-SS, the elite Aryan supermen who committed some of the very worst atrocities of the war. Adrian Wheel is a British historian and army veteran who spent much of his career investigating this bizarre story of non-German SS volunteers. Initially, uh, Himmler, who was who was the sort of guiding light of, of the SS from uh, from the mid twenties onwards, had this idea that it would be uh, an order of of Aryan Germanic people who would would transcend nationality. They would create the SS as an order of the Germanic people. So apart from Germans and Austrians, that would include people of, of German heritage from uh, Central Europe, so from Poland, Czechoslovakia and, and elsewhere. Uh, and it would also include uh, the Nordic peoples, so the Scandinavians, the Saxons, so the British, uh, and people of, of similar heritage. One of the things I read which I found sort of slightly amusing in a slightly in a slightly grim way is that some members of the SS sort of didn't particularly like, you know, a more diverse recruiting ground and sort of Himmler had to say, well, don't be so racist to members of yeah. his SS. <laughs> no, that's absolutely right. So uh, one of the big complaints of some of the early uh, so-called Germanic recruits was that... Uh, was that the the German NCOs who were who were training them regarded them as inferiors, uh, and uh, you know were using sort of racial slurs against them, uh, and and Himmler certainly got very cross about that. So the guy Corlander that we're, that we're sort of doing in this story, I mean he 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 comes up from another source of recruits, which is prisoners of war. Can you explain how they ended up um, in the SS? From about 1941 onwards, uh, prisoners of war became a source of recruits into the German armed forces as a whole. Uh, so the vast numbers of, uh, of Soviet soldiers had been captured, many of whom weren't ethnic Russians and many of whom you know, regarded themselves as, as living in countries occupied by the Soviet Union. Uh, and they began to volunteer in quite large numbers. It was as a result of, of the formation of these, of these foreign units, both within the German army and the SS, that, uh, that the idea came up for a unit composed of, of soldiers from uh, the British Army and from the uh, Allied Commonwealth uh, forces who'd been captured and were, were being held by the Germans. This group of British and Commonwealth SS volunteers were known as the British Free Corps. The leader of the corps was John Amory, one of Britain's most famous traitors, the son of one of Winston Churchill's cabinet ministers. 
He and a few other hardcore British fascists were mixed in with the POWs at Genshagen and attempted to convince prisoners to join their ranks. Roy Corlander was one of their very first volunteers. This is the point where Corlander turned traitor. Corlander became one of the leading figures in this organisation. Uh, the sort of leadership group was known as the Big Six, and Corlander was one of those men. Um, and he had an absolute key role in recruiting for the uh, British Free Corps. He went round many POW camps, distributing propaganda, interviewing prisoners, trying to convince them that they should join the British Free Corps. Um, with a conspicuous lack of success, I might say. Um, Generally, prisoners regarded him with utter contempt and hatred. Um, So he wasn't very successful. Not very effective is probably an understatement. The SS only ever managed to recruit 54 men into the British Free Corps. But as John said, Corlander was in the leadership, the Big Six as they were called. He was issued with an SS uniform, given weapons, and trained at the Nazi headquarters in Hildesheim. But the biggest job that Corlander and his fellow traitors had wasn't fighting. Adrian Wheel says the British Free Corps were mostly a propaganda unit. Modern uh, sort of theorists of psychological warfare and propaganda classify propaganda in three ways. So there's there's white propaganda, uh, which is uh, in World War II terms German radio stations broadcast in Eng- in English to the UK and to to other English speaking parts of the world saying this is Germany this is this is the news from the German point of view uh, there's grey propaganda where the source is not necessarily acknowledged and there's black propaganda which uh, is purporting to be something which it isn't uh, and Kohlander was involved in in the German black propaganda operation so they set up a number of uh, radio stations which were it supposedly based secret stations based within the UK. Uh, so there was a thing called the New British Broadcasting Station, the Workers' Challenge. Um, there was a Radio Caledonia, which was a, a sort of Scottish nationalist station, and a, and a couple of others as well, which purported to be sort of underground stations run by disaffected Brits. Uh, and Corlander was involved in broadcasting for the New British Broadcasting Station, uh, which was supposedly a sort of underground fascist station uh, and may have contributed to some of the others as well. And d- did it work? <laughs> or is that sort of hard to say? <laughs> it's really hard to say because um, certainly the broadcasts were monitored uh, here by the BBC, actually. Uh, and uh, so so it was possible to listen to them. But uh, it's very difficult to, to really work out whether many, if any, people actually paid any attention to them. Uh, one of the stations, Workers' Challenge, which which had a sort of pseudo-communist um, ideology, uh, was quite popular because there was a lot of swearing on it. Uh, and, you know, the first broadcast use of the F word uh, on the British airwaves. So, so that got some listeners, but, um, uh, you know, just if only for the novelty value. Uh, but uh, other than that, it's it's really difficult to say whether it got through at all. Yeah, swearing on the radio is probably not the worst of the SS atrocities, is it? Um, <laughs> no, not at all. I've tried really hard to find recordings of Roy Corlander's propaganda broadcasts, but unfortunately the BBC couldn't find anything in their archives. 
based on the transcripts of his court-martial, it sounds like it was the usual Nazi talking points. The Allied cause is hopeless, and the British government is controlled by a Jewish conspiracy. That sort of thing. I did manage to find some recordings of another pro-German propagandist, William Joyce, formerly a senior member of the British Union of Fascists, who was known by the nickname Lord Haw Haw, because he spoke with an almost ridiculously upper-class British accent. Let me tell you that in Germany there still remains the spirit of unity and the spirit of strength. Let me tell you that here we have a united people. They are not imperialists. They don't want to take what doesn't belong to them. All they want is to live their own simple lives. I say, Es lebe Deutschland. Heiliger and farewell. One funny thing about Joyce, he was actually Irish American, so that accent must have been faked. Lord Haw Haw, as he was known, was executed after the war for high treason. But the star of our show, Roy Corlander, managed to get out while the going was good. All night long, bulletins have been pouring in from Berlin, claiming that D-Day is here, claiming that the invasion of Western Europe has begun. Uh, let me read you several of the latest bulletins. One says that a report, unconfirmed by allied sources, of course, says that heavy fighting is taking place between the Germans and invasion forces on the Normandy Peninsula, about 31 miles southwest of Le Havre. Men and women of the United States, this is a momentous hour in world history. This is the invasion of Hitler's Europe, the zero hour of the Second Front. I think Corlander had a major wake-up call on the 6th of June 1944 with D-Day. I think he was by no means a stupid man. He... um, he was one of the better educated members of the Free Corps. Uh, so in July, August time, 1944, he started to agitate to get himself transferred to a different part of the SS. Corlander goes off and with another guy, Metton, who he seems to be a bit of a friend of, a uh, former British commando, uh, they go and join the Kirk Eggers Regiment, which is another Waffen SS unit. It's a propaganda unit which had uh, companies spread around the different battlefronts and basically uh, did propaganda work about how wonderful the SS was and the great work they were doing defending Western Europe from the Bolshevik menace and so on. And he and Maton go off and they go to Brussels. And they arrive in Brussels beginning of September 44, end of August, it's a bit unclear. But at that time, it's quite clear that the Germans are already in the process of evacuating Brussels. Well, he and Maton discard their uniforms, join up with the Belgian resistance, and take part in street fighting against the Germans. And Holland is actually wounded. So now we've picked up where we started, in Brussels. At his trial, Corlander made a big deal of the fighting he did alongside the Belgian resistance. He said that... If the Belgians who were wounded with me are found, they will confirm that I over a period of four or five hours, cleared out several German strong points, practically single-handed. Those wounded Belgians never were found, so we don't know if that story was true. You could say this is evidence that, yes, 
Corps lander was telling the truth, that he had joined the British Free Corps to undermine it, and that when he got a chance, he defected and, in fact, fought against the Germans. The fact that he took his SS uniform with him, with all his badges and everything, that adds to it. If he was really just trying to hide and pretend to be some escaped prisoner of war or so on, well, he could have dumped his SS uniform and just said, yes, I'm Roy Corlander, I'm an escaped POW, and I'm glad to see you guys. But he didn't. He made no bones about the fact that he had uh, been in the German forces, had deserted, and um, told us very, gave a very lengthy account of his activities. But I'm inclined to see it as a high-risk strategy to cover his tracks, basically. By doing this, he made his activities in Germany seem somewhat more plausible. And the story he told about his activities in Germany. Could it be that Roy Corlander really was a hero? Or was he just trying to cover his tracks to save his skin? We'll come back to that question a bit later on. Corlander was taken back to the UK and debriefed by British intelligence. He passed on information about the British Free Corps and tried to sell his story to some newspapers. Some of the stories he told the papers are frankly unbelievable. For example, he said one of his roles with the British Free Corps was to use a flamethrower to kill German civilians who'd been trapped under rubble in Allied bombing raids. This, according to Corlander, was part of a German strategy to keep the German people from realising how badly the raids were affecting Berlin. That story was later proven to be false. While Roy Corlander was safe back in the UK, his former comrades in the British Free Corps were continuing their work. One of the more bizarre stories from the time after Corlander left is how they attempted to recruit six members of the 28th Māori Battalion. Yep, that's right. The white supremacist Waffen SS tried to recruit a group of Māori. And in another crazy twist, one of New Zealand's most prominent war historians, Dr Monty Souter, is actually related to one of those men. We've always had a photograph uh, in the family. Um, my mother's brother, heard his father was um, captured overseas and uh, he has this photograph of five soldiers. Um, when I was researching the 28 Māori Battalion uh, back in the 90s, one of the men in the photograph was still alive. And so that prompted me to go see him and very reluctant to speak, but uh, that's how I happened upon the the details of what lay behind the photograph. So they were taken to a, a work camp in Odenburg in Germany, and it was while they were working there at that camp that they were invited to uh, basically change sides uh, and that they were offered to go on a um, trip through Germany and uh, he told me that, well, him and his five mates were up for it because they knew it was an opportunity um, to get out, uh, see a bit of the place. They told that they would be well-fed, um, they'd be allowed to drink, uh, and they'd be taken to dances and things like that. And so they had no intention of, of changing sides whatsoever, but they thought they'd play along with this. 
And it was while he was on that tour of Germany that this photograph was taken. And he pointed out to me, he said, if you look at us in the photograph, we're well-fed, uh, well-dressed. And he said that's not how uh, life was in a prisoner of war camp. It was a propaganda photograph. But when it came to the end of the two months and they were asked um, were they willing to join the German Free Corps, they said, oh, of course not. Um, and they knew they'd be going going back to the work camp. But he said that the whoever's in charge of the SS at, at that point was very upset and that this SS head said to him that you guys shouldn't even be in this war. Um, by that I take it they mean, you know, you're indigenous people of New Zealand, you're colonised by the British and uh, what you're doing fighting us. Um, they just couldn't understand why colonised people would be fighting alongside the coloniser. It seems crazy, but this approach actually did work in some cases. There was a division of the Waffen-SS called the Indian Free Legion, which was made up of thousands of Indian POWs who wanted to ally with Nazi Germany to free India from British occupation. Anyway, the British Free Corps continued their work right up until the end of the war. Eventually they were sent to the Eastern Front where they served alongside 15-year-old boys, old men and amputees in the doomed last-ditch effort to block the Soviet invasion. Astonishingly, all its members survived, and many of them tried to slip back into Britain by mixing with British POWs being freed from the prison camps. But eventually they were rounded up, and all but one of them faced trial by court-martial. In October 1945, Roy Corlander stepped up to the dock. His defence was basically that, yes, he had joined the BFC and had taken part in pro-German propaganda, but it was all part of a scheme to undermine the German war effort. In his own words, he put it like this. I had decided to take a course of action that would lead, as I hoped, to either one of the two following results. One, if I could be satisfied that the unit would be under my control or the control of a person I could easily influence, then I would gradually collect together a unit eventually to be used to create a diversion or a revolution in the rear of the German lines. Two, if the unit could not be easily converted, I would sabotage it to the best of my ability. Here's John Crawford again. The British and the New Zealanders just do not buy his story at all. And he's charged with collaboration. He's tried by a New Zealand court-martial in the United Kingdom. And he, he, he gives a pretty good defence. And he writes this 13,500-word statement. And he gets some uh, people who will give evidence in his defence. There's an Australian uh, POW who he uh, talked to at the holiday camp. Um, who says, yes, Corlander told me that, that all his activities were part of a big plot to escape via Spain. Mm. So, you know, I, I, when I read that, I thought, well, that's really interesting. Is it a case of Corlander giving himself a bit of insurance, mm. or is it the truth? Adrian Wheel thinks it's extremely likely that Corlander was lying when he told that story. Quite a number of mem- people who joined the British Free Corps uh, tried to hedge their bets. So before they left their POW camps, they they went to senior prisoners and they would say to them, look, I'm joining the British Free Corps, but I'm only doing it to try to escape. Uh, and there's there's some evidence that Corlander did that, uh, but there's plenty of evidence that uh, he wasn't sincere. I think his enthusiastic participation in, um, in the recruitment activities of the British Free Corps was 
seen as as pretty strong evidence that that he wasn't trying to escape, uh, and the fact that he was able to travel around Germany, uh, unsupervised, armed, carrying papers which which gave him freedom of movement, uh, and yet never tried to escape uh, during those periods uh, was also a pretty strong indicator that uh, that he didn't really have any intention of doing so. Adrian Wheel thinks that Roy Corlander joined the British Free Corps for two reasons: ideological fascism and opportunism. So he quite clearly identified himself with the fascists within the British Free Corps uh, and formed a part of a group within the British Free Corps known as the Big Six, who were who were the early members, the, the fascist uh, ideologues. And he was by far the most enthusiastic recruiter for the British Free Corps. Uh, the opportunist side of him, I think, I think relates to the period of the war in which he was captured. So in 1941, he was with the New Zealand Expeditionary Force, the New Zealand Division, fighting in Greece uh, and was captured then. And I think the experience for for all British and Commonwealth soldiers at that time was that every time we fought the Germans, they kicked our butts. It was not difficult for them to to form the view that Germany was going to win the war uh, and that they had an opportunity, or for Roy Callender, he had an opportunity Uh, to uh, wind up on the winning side. Corlander was found guilty and returned to New Zealand with a sentence of 15 years in prison. Yes, he was in Mount Eden. He was, in fact, the last member of 2NZF to be in prison. He wages this pretty effective campaign with the help of his long-suffering wife um, to prove his innocence and also to get his sentence reduced, which he's successful. In 1950, he gets it cut to nine years imprisonment and he gets out the following year in October 1951. His life afterwards just, I think, shows you what a, not flaky character he was, but how you couldn't trust the man. Um, so he's involved in you know, some legal work, but then there's lots of rumours of illegal activity too. Um, suggestions that he's involved in sly grogging, which was a big business in Auckland in those days. Yeah, he seems to have been a bit of a, a shady character. What did his fellow soldier? Because I mean, there were obviously a lot of ex POWs who might have run into him in the street. What did they have to say about the whole thing? Well, most of them just had nothing but contempt for him. Um, there were a few who believed him, um, and you see evidence on the files of people writing and saying, "Yes, I knew Roy Corlander, and he was a decent man." Da 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 da. Um, he was quite active in the Social Credit Political League, which is an interesting aspect of his uh, post-release career. The Social Credit Movement had some fairly dubious characters attracted to it in, uh, in its early years, and if you count Corlander as one of those. Nothing particularly significant seems to happen in Auckland. Then he goes off in the 1960s, he goes to live in Australia, and basically he loses touch with all his New Zealand friends. Uh, various rumours float around that he's in fact... Uh, been murdered by gangsters he'd fallen foul of in Sydney. But, in fact, as far as it can be established, he lived on until 1979 in uh, New South Wales and died um, in pretty poor circumstances. His last known address is a, was a pretty run-down council flat. Before I go, one extra thing you should know about Roy Corlander... His stepfather, Leonard Corlander, was probably Jewish. Historians haven't found any definite evidence to prove this, but 
If it's true, it throws a whole new light on his story. Maybe there was some family tension which led him to develop anti-Semitic views. It's hard to say. One other thing. That holiday camp in Genshagen? It was right next door to a slave labour camp where Jews and other undesirables were deliberately worked to death in full view of Roy Corlander and his fellow collaborators. Just something worth thinking about. Very special thanks to John Crawford and to the New Zealand Defence Force for giving me access to Roy Corlander's court-martial records. Also, special thanks to Adrian Wheel and Monty Souter. If you want to read more about the British Free Corps, I can recommend Adrian's book, Renegades, Hitler's Englishman. There's also a TV documentary which I found on YouTube based on that book, which features interviews with members of the British Free Corps. I'll post a link to that on the website. Speaking of the website, that's one of the many places you can subscribe to Black Sheep. You can also subscribe via our app or on whatever other podcasting app you use. Also, check out some of RNZ's other great podcasts. If you're a parent, you might enjoy Are We There Yet? It's all about the pleasures, pratfalls and practical lessons of parenting in the modern world. Black Sheep is written and presented by me, William Ray. The executive producer is Tim Watkin and our sound engineer is Phil Benge. And voice acting the role of the Nazi Roy Corlander was Max Toll. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.